This message first aired on the radio on January 30th, 2004. When we look at 1 Corinthians 10, and that's where we are, we're in the middle, really, or the, the second third of 1 Corinthians 10. We're in verses 11 and 12 to begin with today. When we look at it, we see a couple of things that need to be taken properly, and so they need to be distinguished in the Scriptures, per our understanding, from other things that may have apparent contradictions. We read verses 11 and 12, and it says, Now all these things happened unto them, or happened, for our examples, and they are written for our admonition, or our warning, upon whom the ends of the ages are come. So we find that the wilderness journey references that we have looked at in verses 8, 9, and 10 of 1 Corinthians 10, the failure of the children of Israel in the wilderness, where they received very strict judgment. 23,000 died in the wilderness in verse 8. Some tempted Christ and were destroyed of the destroyer, fiery serpents, uh, destroyed of fiery serpents in verse 9. And others murmuring were destroyed of the destroyer in verse 10. These three examples, and there are others, were written for our warning upon whom the ends of the ages are come. Now that was in a different age. It was in the age of the children of Israel in the wilderness. We might say the church in the wilderness, as it's called in Acts chapter 7. But here we say, these things happened unto them for our types, or our examples. That is to say, there's a template in the Old Testament, the wilderness journey of the children of Israel, and it corresponds to our living of the Christian life. And indeed, if we say, for example, if we say conveniently, left to right, the Passover in Egypt corresponds to our salvation, then they were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, corresponds to the inauguration of our Christian life. Following our salvation, we're born again uh, in the world, in Egypt, and now we are baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and there we see two baptisms. We see baptized into the body of Christ, which is a thing that happens spiritually. When we receive the baptizer, we receive his baptism into the body of Christ, and that corresponds to the cloud. And then we see the sea, and that corresponds to water baptism as they came across the Red Sea, inaugurating the Christian life. And then in the wilderness, it corresponds to the Christian life, which can be led successfully or unsuccessfully. The Christian life can be conducted unsuccessfully if we'll walk by sight and not by faith, as many of them did. And that's, that's what led to their destruction. They walked by sight and not by faith. But if we'll walk by faith and not by sight, then as many as are led by the Spirit of God, Romans chapter 8, these are the sons or mature ones of God. And then we see Romans eight seventeen. We see that all those were heirs of God. They were all children. They were all heirs of God. But with many of them, God was not pleased. And so now we see and joint heirs with Christ, if so be, we suffer with him. And they were refusing to walk by grace through faith. They were refusing to go the way of the cross, and I use the terms for our life backwards into their example. And therefore, 599,998 of that generation perished in the wilderness, and only two, Joshua and Caleb, who walked by faith in God's word instead of the sights around them, entered into the promised land. And now we see, well, what's the promised land? Well, many of you say heaven, 
But I'm afraid to tell you that heaven is a very unspecific term. When you say, I'm going to heaven, that's not, strictly speaking, a Bible term. I may know what you mean. I may not. We are all going to be with the Lord forever in bliss and have eternal life. On the other hand, before we come to our final state, and we won't know our final state until in resurrection, with resurrection bodies, we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ to receive for the things done, good things or evil things, for, to receive either good or evil according to how we have conducted our Christian life or the deeds done in the body. And that's an awesome consideration. So we are the ones upon whom the ends of the age have come. These things are written to warn us, and we need to be warned. And in that case, we have verse 12, Wherefore, let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Now, what is this standing? You say, well, I mean, I'm very confident of my standing in Christ. I'm seated in the heavenly places. I have eternal life. That's not this subject. This subject isn't as to whether you have eternal life. This is a subject as to whether you are pleasing in your Christian life to God. And it's, of course, a very related subject. You're not going to have a Christian life if you haven't been born again. But be not deceived. Be not deceived. How you conduct your Christian life matters very much. And the apostle led this all off by saying, Moreover, brethren, chapter 10, verse 1, I would not have you ignorant concerning these things. So what are we then? Well, mostly, we're ignorant, ignorant brethren concerning these things. Now, in case you're disheartened, you say, well, 599,998 of them failed. How will I succeed? We now have the encouragements, uh, verses 13, 14, and we'll go on. First he says, verse 13, There has no temptation taken you, but such as is moderate or common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able now, God has measured the temptations that he allows in your life. God measures them according to your ability to withstand them. So you never have an excuse with God that you just couldn't resist. God does not allow temptations to befall us that we cannot resist. He says he will not suffer you to be tempted beyond that which you're able. And now you can imagine all manner of circumstances wherein you would not be able to abide temptation. Those are imaginations that you can have. And of course you can argue the plan of God based on your own imaginations. But here the scripture says, God will not allow such temptation to befall you except as is moderate to man, or that is to say, commonly able to be withstood by you. Now. Now that means that God is still in charge of all the temptations that we have. God is in charge of our Christian life. And God is able to keep us, both to keep us from being tempted and to keep us through temptations according to his own plan and design. And we need to remember, brothers and sisters, that God is not trying to disqualify us from pleasing him and from entering gloriously into his kingdom with a triumphant and happy state at the judgment seat of Christ, but he is trying to qualify us so that we would be happy and that we would be bold at that time. So here now, what does he provide? Well, with temptation, it tells us, but with the temptation, he'll also make a way 
to escape that you may be able to bear it. So when you're tempted, we know we're to resist the devil and he'll flee from us, but God makes a way for us to escape the sin which is to indulge that temptation. And he gives us this way of escape if we would only look for it. And I would encourage us now that because we walk by faith and not by sight, that when we have a temptation in front of us, we need to look for the exit door. We need to look for the way out of the temptation. God always provides in His grace a way out of the temptation in order that you may be able to bear it, in order that you may be able to have a successful stand against the temptation. So when a temptation comes, God has a little exit there that you may be able to endure and successfully resist the temptation. That's what this scripture says. Now, verse 14, it says, Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, here he comes into another problem that was going on in Corinth. We talked about the liberty to eat the meat sacrificed to idols back in chapter 8. And we see that there was liberty to eat that meat. But there's another problem besides the meat sacrificed to idols, and that was the idolatry before the idols that some of the Corinthians used to involve themselves in, and apparently some still did. Idolatry is one of those sins characterized in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which if a man persists in, he cannot be a participant in the local church, but is to be shunned or is to be avoided in the context of the local church. Today, friends, we tolerate very much, we even embrace idolatry in some of our local churches, and it is a crying shame. But this is another question that was apparently raised to the apostle, what about participation in idolatrous practice? Now this may come up in your own life, so the scriptures here are relevant. Because it's one thing to eat the meat that you learned or that you know is sacrificed to idols, because we realize the idol is nothing. But it's a very separate and different thing now to participate in the idolatrous worship that goes on. The uh, actual sacrifice to a statue or some kind of image is nothing. But the participation in the activity, the inclination of the heart in idolatry, that is something real, and there's something real behind the object of idolatrous worship. And that is what he now takes up. So I hope you understand the distinction. There's nothing unclean of itself, but there is behavior called idolatry that is abhorrent, and here the Apostle is going to give reasons, and very clear reasons, why it is forbidden to the Christian. So let's pay strict heed. He says, I speak, verse 14, Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. Now there's a couple of things to flee from, and they're related. First Corinthians chapter 6, flee fornication. Every other sin is committed outside the body, but the one who commits fornication sins against his own body. And by the way, there's a very close relationship between fornication and idolatry. Now it says, Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. 
So now we see the reason why he tells us that there's no temptation that has befallen us except that it is moderate to man, and God who, with the temptation, will provide a way to escape. Well, how do you escape? You see the escape route, and then you flee into it. You flee into it. One of the great uh, examples of this is Joseph, about whom we read no offense ever in the Scripture. Doesn't mean he never did any offense. I'm sure he did. But we don't read of any of his offenses. And he was one time besought by the wife of the man he worked for, and she was asking him to lie with her. Now temptation came his way, and she grabbed his outer garment, and he left it in her hand. He looked around, he saw the door, and he got himself out. He fled temptation. He fled fornication. Here now flee also idolatry, dearly beloved. And some of us grew up in idolatrous systems of religion. I did. I was raised a Roman Catholic and much of the system of religion which I had learned, much of it, not all of it, but much of it was around idolatry. And I want to say for you that, uh, what some of that idolatry was, so that you'll be very clear what I'm talking about. The worship, or veneration as it's called, of Mary and of saints, the praying to saints, the gazing upon statues, and really praying to statues. You could say, well, there's somebody behind that statue. Well, that's what idolatry is all about. We'll see that here. It wasn't really Mary. It wasn't really saints. There are demons behind this whole thing. All of that was an idolatrous form. The Roman Catholic Mass, strictly idolatry. And the details of it, if I were to go into them, is revolting. But that is the kind of idolatry that I fled from. Now he says, I speak as to wise men. Judge you what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion or the fellowship of the blood of Jesus Christ? The blood of Christ. The bread which we break, is it not the communion or the fellowship of the body of Christ? Now these are two statements that we need to look at very carefully so that we don't involve ourselves in some idolatrous forms. First of all, he's talking about the cup of blessing. The cup of blessing was a cup of wine that was drunk at the Passover. I believe it was the third glass of wine to be drunk. I believe there were four cups. The third cup was a cup of blessing. There are those who have different viewpoints on this, I'll just say, and it's not in the scripture. Uh, this is a practice of the Jews that was not outlined as part of the Passover, but traditionally the cup of blessing, which was at the end of the meal, was the third cup, and it was to be drank with joy and gladness as a celebratory cup of wine, and it was a shared cup. This It was called the cup of blessing. And the cup of blessing is the thing that answers to the Lord's Supper of, of which we partake as Christians. And the particulars of that will be in the context here of 1 Corinthians 10, but it'll be brought up in some detail in 1 Corinthians 11. So it was called the cup of blessing. It's a shared cup among Christians, just as the Lord's Supper is a shared cup among Christians. Now I know you're probably in a church where that symbol has been trampled upon or destroyed. Maybe you have little tiny cups. Maybe you don't ever see a cup. I don't know. But a common cup was the common way of remembering the Lord in his appointed way. 
And it says, Is this not the communion or the fellowship of the blood of Christ? Now, we have fellowship of the blood of Christ. We don't have the blood of Christ present in the cup or any such other thing like that. We have the fellowship one with another of the meritorious work of the blood of Christ, and that cup reminds us of it. Well, we're going to stop for a break here, and we're going to come back. We've got a lot to say. We don't have a lot of time to do it, uh, but we'll be back in just a minute. Won't you stay with us? Well, we're talking about the cup of blessing, the communion of the blood of Christ, and what it is is it's the fellowship we have one another of the enjoyment of the meritorious work of his shed blood. And then we say, the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Again, it doesn't say, is not the bread the body of Christ, because it is not the body of Christ. The body of Christ, in physical form, is his body of flesh and bone at the right hand of God Almighty. He's there, he's in a geographical place. If we could get there, and when we get there, we can touch him. He's at a place called the third heaven in Second Corinthians, the paradise of God, and that's where the Lord Jesus Christ's physical body is. His mystical body, or the body of Christ, the fullness of Christ, is the church, which is his body, and we are all who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, members of the body of Christ. All who have been born again are members of the body of Christ. And, of course, the communion of the body of Christ is something that takes place in every local church when they remember the Lord Jesus Christ in his appointed way by partaking of these elements, the cup and the loaf. Here it is, the bread which we break. It's not the body of Christ. It is the fellowship of the body of Christ. And, of course, we both realize his absence, and we realize our commonality together as the church, which is his body. Now, that's the fellowship that we have. He says, judge what I say. Don't you realize that this is the fellowship that we have? And now he says, For we, being many, are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Now this is a marvelous saying. He says, Judge what I say. We, being many, are one bread, really, or one loaf. We see ourselves as one because... Really, this should be translated in this particular case where it says one bread. It should say, we being many are one loaf and one body, for we are partakers of that one bread. Well, what bread is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That's what he's talking about according to John chapter 6. And if we look at John 6, we can see that the Lord Jesus gave this very clear teaching about this. And we'll read there. We'll turn to John 6, and we'll just read. It begins out, the Lord Jesus Christ is declaring who he is, and the Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the, he, the Lord Jesus Christ said, I am the bread that comes down to you from heaven. I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me, uh, and this is my Father's will, this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he has given me I should lose nothing but raise it up again at the last day. We're in John chapter 6 and verse 40, And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one 
which sees the Son and believes on Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. The Jews then murmured at Him because He said, I am the bread which came down from heaven, and of course that's a correspondence to the manna that was in the wilderness. And the Lord Jesus said, You received manna in the wilderness, but I am the bread that came down from heaven. And he points out that the wilderness journey, here what we see in 1 Corinthians 10, corresponds in type to actual realities. As they had manna in the wilderness, the scripture said he gave them bread from heaven to eat. The Lord Jesus said in John 6:32, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then they said unto him, Lord, evermore, give us this bread. And the Lord Jesus said in John 6:35, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger. He that believes on me shall never thirst. Now, the Jews don't like this kind of saying. They murmur at him because he said, I'm the bread that comes down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph? Of course, the answer to that is no, he's not the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know. How is it then that he says, I came down from heaven? Of course, we know he came from heaven's glory and became a baby. He was born of the Virgin Mary, but not of Joseph. He was miraculously born, the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary. Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur not among yourselves. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. As it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Every man therefore that has heard and has learned of the Father comes unto me. And friend of mine, I'll just say, that's why I'm not worried about my failure in bringing you to Christ, because if you are one of the Lord's, you will come. God the Father will draw you to the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he says this, Not that any man has seen the Father, save he which is of God, he has seen the Father. Reminds us of also what it says in John's Gospel, No man has seen God at any time. The Lord Jesus Christ, he has exegeted him, or he has fully shown us who God is. And it reminds us also in John's Gospel later, where Philip says, Show us the Father, and it's enough for us, Lord. And he said to them, Have I been so long with you, Philip, and you have not known me? Anyone who knows the Lord Jesus Christ knows God the Father. Now he says, Verily I say unto you, He that believes on me has, present tense, everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. So we see that believing on him and eating the bread from heaven is the same thing. Verily I say unto you, he that believes on me has everlasting life. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread will I give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now, 
This is a marvelous thing. This is the fellowship that every Christian has. We have the fellowship of the one bread. We have the fellowship of the one blood. We fellowship His blood because it's shed for us. We fellowship Him as the bread and know that we have been made one loaf in Him because we are all members of His body. This truth not fully laid out here in 1 Corinthians, but certainly being laid out, being developed, and we'll develop it more as we go into the 11th chapter and we'll try to develop it even more thoroughly, the Lord willing, as we come into the epistle to the Ephesians, which is in some many weeks from now. Well, now it says, We being many are one loaf and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Behold Israel, verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 10, Behold Israel after the flesh, are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? Now he's talking about the idolatrous practice. And he hearkens back to the picture of Israel, and he says, Look at Israel according to the flesh. Are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers, or having fellowship with the altar itself? And the answer to that is true. Those who partake and eat of the sacrifices are partakers, or fellowship, of that altar. He, he now makes a like analogy concerning the practice of idolatry by the children of God here. This is now written to the Corinthians, and so this is what he says about the practice of idolatry. Verse 19, What do I say then? That the idol is anything? Or that that which is offered in sacrifice to the idol is anything? No, he's not saying that the idol is anything, or that the things offered in sacrifice to the idol are anything. The idol itself is a piece of glass, or a piece of wood, or a piece of metal, or whatever it's made out of. That's all it is. Nothing is unclean of itself. The thing sacrificed is not something. It's just a piece of meat. It started out a piece of meat, it ended up a piece of meat. It's not anything unclean of itself. But the practice of the sacrificing, the inclination of the heart of the Gentiles doing it, that now is what the apostle distinguishes. So his questions, what do I say? That the idol is anything, or that which is offered to the sacrifice is anything? The answer to that is no, I'm not reversing what I have said before. But I say, verse 20, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons, or devils, demons, and not to God. And that comes from Deuteronomy, the 32nd chapter, where the children of Israel were warned that if they departed from God into the practice of the Gentiles, they would be worshiping the whole host of heaven, and they would be worshiping the demons that are out there, the wicked spirits, the spirits of wickedness, which roam around looking to attract this very kind of activity to themselves. So here we see that, and now he says at the end of verse 20, And I would not that you would have fellowship with demons. Now that is what idolatrous practice is. It is fellowship with demons. And today, in our world, let me assure you that it is becoming increasingly common for people to have forms of fellowship with demons, and God forbid that the children of God would be involving themselves in anything like this. So flee idolatry, get you out of it. And if you're in an idolatrous system of some kind, or an idolatrous indulging of some kind, 
then flee from it. God has given you an escape, whether it's the back door or the front door. Get you out and begin to fellowship with God's people who fellowship the blood of Jesus Christ and who fellowship the body of Jesus Christ, God Almighty himself, and not some kind of demons. Now, verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils or demons. You cannot be partaker of the Lord's table and the table of demons. He said this is disharmonious. This is not consistent. You cannot come in a worthy manner to fellowship the Lord Jesus Christ if you are busy in idolatrous worship of demons. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Now this is something we were warned about. Don't tempt Christ as they did and some of them were destroyed of serpents. So he says, do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient or profitable. All things are lawful, but all things do not edify or build up. So here he's saying that when it comes to idolatrous worship, yeah, the idol's nothing, yeah, the sacrifice is just meat, but hey, behind that whole system is demons, and you're not to have communion or fellowship with demons. Seems like it doesn't need to be said to Christians, but what? It does need to be said to Christians. It has been said to Christians. 1 Corinthians 10, written to whom? To all of us, upon whom the end of the ages are come. And we're still those upon whom the end of the ages have come. And what's it written for? Is it written for our enjoyment? No, it's written for our admonition or our warning. Well, here it tells us now, as the apostle continues on, to discuss this subject, which requires careful discernment between what he is saying and what he's not saying. Here's what he's saying. Let no man seek his own, but every man another's. That is to say, quit just looking about your own stuff. Look upon the benefit of the others, of the other man's. A look upon the benefit of your brother. And now he's talking about, continuing to talk about, uh, this delicate relationship that the Christians have with the society around them when the society around them is entirely turned over to idolatry. He said, Whatsoever is sold in the shambles, eat, asking no question for conscience sake. Now here the shambles was the meat market. And it was associated with the pagan temple. And the sacrifices to the idols, the meat went from there, and it went out into the shambles, and it was sold to the public. So it was first sacrificed to the idol. I suppose the pagan priesthood took their pieces of it. And then it went out into the meat market, and all the meat went that way. Now the apostle just recommended to the people... Don't ask all about that meat, what happened to it, what was the sacrifice like, and so forth, for the sake of conscience. Don't even ask about it. Just buy the meat, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And by the way, friends, this is where you get the beginning of praying. This was a prayer that was repeated. This scripture was a prayer repeated oftentimes among the early Christians. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. This was what they would say about their food before they ate it because, of course, they wanted to recognize that whatever process this food went through to come to them, it came to them from our Lord Jesus Christ, 
for their benefit, and the earth is the Lord's. It belongs to him. He created it by himself, and he created it for himself. Now it says, If any of them that believe not bid you to go to a feast, and you're disposed to go, or whatsoever is set before you eat, asking no question for conscience sake. Now, not just your conscience, but also his conscience. So, just be polite. If they invite you to one of their feasts, go there, eat whatever's put before you, and don't ask any question for conscience sake. And it's going to be his conscience. Now, we're going to come back in just a minute, and we're going to look at the rest of this subject, and we'll finish up the 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Why don't you stay with us? So we see here that there's conscience involved in the eating of this meat which would sacrifice the idols. The Christians aren't supposed to participate in the idolatrous sacrifice, but the work product, the meat, that's another matter. And he says, now, don't even ask about it because of the conscience, not just your own conscience, but the conscience of the one with whom you are speaking. Now he says, conscience, I say, not thine own, but of the other. For why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? This is verse 29. Now, we'll look back again at verse 28. If a man says unto you, this is offered in sacrifice unto idols, here he says, if we say nothing, go ahead and eat it. But if the man says unto you, this is offered in sacrifice unto idols, eat not for the sake of him that showed it for conscience sake. In other words, here is his conscience. Now, he has a conscience concerning this idol. Now that he said this is sacrificed to idols, you don't eat it because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So on the one hand, you may eat because of your own conscience, because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. But here now is someone who has a conscience that is occupied, or you might even say prima occupied or demonized, by a demon. And so for his sake now, once he mentions that this is sacrificed to idols, you refuse it, not for your conscience sake, but for his conscience sake, because why? He says this meat is dedicated to the idols, and you know the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and you want to demonstrate to him that fact, that fact. So in his case, where he has a conscience about it, you don't eat it. Well, what is the rule here? The rule is conscience, that I commend myself to God according to my own conscience, and that I commend myself to men according to their conscience. This becomes all the more important, friends, brothers and sisters, it becomes all the more important as we live in a society where people walk around with horrible and bad consciences all the time. And this principle can be applied to meat sacrifice to idols, and it can be applied to many, many other things. Now it says, verse 29, Conscience I say not thine own, but of the other, for why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? And of course, my liberty is only judged by my own conscience. For if I by grace be a partaker, why am I evil spoken of for that which I give thanks? 
Now here he says, no matter what that guy thinks, no matter how evil you may think something is, another person may think something is, no matter how evil somebody thinks a gun is, no matter how evil somebody thinks some meat is, no matter how evil anybody thinks some substance is, I will not have my conscience ruled by their thoughts. I will not have my liberty dictated by their thoughts. On the other hand, I will curb my own liberty to suit their conscience, because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and I want to commend to their minds the Lord Jesus Christ and not some demon. This is a difficult thing to understand. This now has to do not with how much liberty you have, just as before, but it has to do with how you use your liberty. Because your liberty and meat and your possessions and your mind and your body and all that is, is for the Lord's sake. So we come to this now, verse 31. Whether therefore you eat or drink, or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. And that's the summary statement. Whatever it is that you do, do to the glory of God. I eat to the glory of God. I don't eat to the glory of God. I drink to the glory of God. I don't drink to the glory of God. And whatsoever it is you do, do that God may get glory. Be directed by the principle not of your own liberty. That's not a sufficient or good principle. Not for the sake uh, of your own conscience. That is not a sufficient principle. The principle is, whatever is to the glory of God. And I glorify God by commending a man to his own conscience. I do things to the glory of God by commending the Lord Jesus Christ in the face of idolatry. And so I don't participate with him. I don't condone him. I don't commend him to his own bad conscience. Well, now we have verse 32, and verse 32 has a, a couple of aspects to it. It has the plainest aspect, which we'll take up first, and then I think in verse 32 we'll take an opportunity to discuss one of the great divisions of Scripture. So here we are, 1 Corinthians 10:32. Give none offense, neither to Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. Now here it says that our purpose is to not be offensive, it's to give none offense. Now, just because someone says they're offended doesn't mean you gave them good reason to be offended. Someone may say, I'm offended when you name the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's not a valid offense. You need to understand that this means a valid offense. Don't stumble someone. Don't give them the opportunity to sin or the notion to sin or don't demonstrate liberty to do that which their own conscience has no liberty to do. It doesn't mean that you won't be offensive to people because testimony, the world hates the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ and I assure you that they'll be offended by much of what commends him to their minds. But here it says, give none offense neither to Jews nor to Gentiles, nor to the church of God. And very simply, friends, we have here one of the main distinctions that we need to make as we understand the Scripture among people. All the people of the world today are divided into three and only three 
distinct groups. And when I say distinct groups, I mean that none of us are in any two of these groups. Here it is, the three groups, Jews, Gentiles, Church of God. You cannot be a Jew and a Gentile at the same time. You cannot be a Gentile and a Jew at the same time. You cannot be a Jew and Church of God at the same time. And you cannot be a Gentile and Church of God at the same time. You see here very clearly, the 32nd verse of 1 Corinthians 10, that these three groups are distinguished one from another. Today, with it seems like more vitriol and more energy than years past, there are those who say that they are Jews and in the Church of God. There is no such thing. There is one new man in Christ. It is not both Jews and Gentiles. It is neither Jew nor Gentile, but a new man in Christ. I don't know how to make that clear enough, because today there seems to be a movement to distinguish Jews and Gentiles inside the church of God, and that is a horrible thing. It is a forbidden thing. It is an awful thing. I am no more a Gentile. I may have an Italian grandfather and an Irish grandfather, but I am not a Gentile. I am Church of God. I am a new man in Christ, and I am a member of the Church, which is His body. And I no longer claim in the in in my Christianity my Gentile roots. And neither should anyone claim in their Christianity their Jewishness. I know what happens today, and it's always happened, is that when a Jew receives Christ as his Savior, his Jewish friends tell him, you're not a Jew anymore, and he wants to go back and say, I am. Let me tell you, they're right. You're not. It doesn't mean you're a Gentile, by the way, and don't let them tell you you are a Gentile. You are part of the church, which is his body, and you're not a Jew anymore. And you're not a Gentile My friend who was formerly a Gentile, you are no longer a Gentile, but you are church of God. And this distinction is important in life and in the life of the church, and it is also extremely important in understanding the Scriptures. And if we understood this division, if we used it as part of our razor to cut the Word of God straightly, we'd make many, many, many fewer mistakes in the Scripture, and we wouldn't have the church of God being dragged through the time of Jacob's troubles, and we wouldn't have the church of God worrying about whether they really have eternal life and are secure, and all other kinds of horrible problems that are dragged in amongst God's people from misunderstanding this very clear distinction of chapter 32, Jew-Gentile, Church of God. They are distinct, three distinct groups, and they will always be that. I will always be a member of the Church of God. I'll never be a Jew. I'll never be a Gentile again. And by the way, that's good news. Now we have verse 33, the final verse of 1 Corinthians 10. Even as I please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. And let me say, this harkens back now to the blessed promise to the patriarch Abraham. The Lord Jesus, uh, the Lord came to uh, Abraham. Of course, the Lord Jesus Christ came to Abraham in Mamre, 
But the Lord came to Abraham, and he said to him, Be thou a blessing. Be a blessing. The apostle tells us elsewhere, and we'll get to that, the Lord willing and helping us, that the Lord told him, It is better to give than receive. Now, of course, it's great to be given. It's great to receive. As many as received the Lord Jesus Christ, he gave the right to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in his name. And so we have received the gift of God, which is eternal life, when we received our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's marvelous and it's tremendous to receive the great gifts that God bestows on us. As good as that is, it is better to give than to receive and here the apostle demonstrates that in his own conduct and in his own behavior he said even as i please men or i seek the good really this means that he seeks the good or profits all men in all things not seeking his own profit but the profit of many that they may be saved and friend of mine maybe you think this won't work Christian friend, Christian brother, sister, maybe you think that this is a loser's philosophy. Well, it's not a philosophy. This is the new man in Christ, modeled in the Apostle Paul, our prototypical servant of Jesus Christ. And what, first and foremost, a servant of Jesus Christ needs to do is set aside his own profit. Don't worry about your own gain. God will see to your gain. Set about seeking the benefit and the profit of others. And if you'll make that your goal, you won't ever have to worry about your own things. God will take care of you, and you will have the marvelous experience, the best experience that a Christian can have, that anyone can have, and that is not only to be blessed, but to be a blessing to others. Let me tell you, I know that it's been a popular kind of thing, the prayer of Jabez, Oh, that God would bless me. Let me tell you, that's not the greatest prayer. The greatest prayer would be this. Oh, that I might be a blessing to others. That I might be a blessing to others. There is no experience quite as satisfying, nearly as satisfying. There is no experience more abounding in joy and love and peace in the Holy Spirit than to be a blessing to someone else. And that was what characterized the Apostle Paul. He didn't seek his own profit. He went about seeking the profit of others, especially that they might be saved. Well, this has been a tremendous chapter, 1 Corinthians 10. It's one of those key chapters. I'd say maybe it's the pinnacle of this book as the Apostle is answering the questions and bringing through a very clear doctrine and a very clear setting for the Corinthians. In fact, a very clear focus that our lives should take. And if we'll be occupied with pleasing our Lord Jesus Christ and our rendezvous with Him at the judgment seat of Christ, we'll have benefited very much from this study. Until next time, may God bless you.